Someone once told me that they didn't care about any theology that they couldn't put into practice today. And I understand that term, um, but then I spent some time with the man, and we went to a bank, and he had to deposit some money into an account, into a savings account, and he was like commenting, he's like, oh yeah, you've always got to put some money away for a rainy day. Uh, Then we went to a tree nursery, and he was picking out like a little sapling, right? Like just a tiny little tree to put into his yard. And he's just like, ah, oh, man, you got to start small. This thing is going to be beautiful in like 10, 10 years. It's going to be beautiful. And I heard him talk to his eight-year-old son at the dinner table where he, his son was like messing around, like had stuff all over his face. And he's like, son, you got to learn manners now because one day you're going to be sitting across from a beautiful young lady in a date And you're going to want to show her that you are a good and well-behaved young man. So you need to learn now. And so I kind of looked at him and was like, wait a second. We did all these things today. Were those only things that would apply for today? Or were you storing away for the future? Now, honestly, that, that, that is not exactly a totally true story. It's kind of a combination of different things. But I think it reflects the truth of when it comes to theology... And doctrine, sometimes we're so focused on, I need to apply today, that we forget that a lot of our teachings from the God's word is supposed to be put away for a rainy day. It's supposed to prepare us for a proper time. And, and I've titled this message, Raptured Readied for Grief, because in this passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, is all about how the rapture, God's calling away of his people is supposed to help us when we're really sad at a funeral or at just the loss of someone or hearing news of, oh, this old friend I know has passed away. How do we have hope? And Paul says, the Bible says, God says, you have hope by having a good doctrine of the rapture. It's not just a bunch of charts, and I'm not going to have, I thought about it, I was like, oh man, I could get some charts out and talk about that. I don't believe that's the point of this text. There are other texts that give that. That's not the point of this text, and so I want to just focus on what this text is about, and maybe we could have a more larger discussion. It it does fit in kind of well with Pastor Yuri kind of gave the long story about the land last week, and talked about the future for Israel. I'm just going to talk about the future for dead believers today. Um, If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Let me read verses 13 through 18. Philippians 4, 13 through 18. Um, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians. I'm sorry. I I, I love Philippians chapter 4 so much. I for my mind just wants to go there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thank you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, it's been since November since I was preaching from 1 Thessalonians, so it's been a little bit of time. So let me remind you about the book of 1 Thessalonians, because it's a very personal book written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And you have to remember that this is the church that Paul went to before he went to the Bereans. This was the church, you know, the Bereans, all oh, they, they accepted him so well. The people of Thessalonica, not the church, but the non-believers, kicked Paul out and he had to run away in terror for his life. And so Paul spends all of chapter one just being amazed that the church is still going strong. He's just like thanking God for them, that they are still going strong, that he had to run away, but they are not only going like strong and persevering, everyone around them is going, wow, this is a great model church. And chapter two and three is kind of his recap of, hey, remember my ministry with you? It's been a long time. Let's just remember one another. Perhaps there's a little bit of a backbiting against Paul saying, oh, he ran away because he didn't really care about you. And he's defending himself saying, no, I did. This is what happened. Like, this is very much an exemplary church. They have so much going for them. They are growing in the gospel. They're enduring through difficulties. Chapter 4 and 5, he switches his tone a little bit, and he's trying to say, all right, let me instruct you in a few things. Let me, let me tell you a few things and remind you of a few things. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, is a gentle rebuke about sexual immorality where he's reminding them of saying, you know what? Sexual morality cannot be accepted in a Christian church. Then verses 9 through 12 is more of a commendation of saying, yeah, I, you know, be careful of this, but you know so much about brotherly love. Brotherly love, you, you do such a good job of loving one another. And we talked about previously how it's a good reminder at times, even when you're doing something good, it's good to be reminded. It doesn't mean you don't have more to grow in. And we, we see a problem that they had. They, they were an exemplary church. They had so much going for them, but their theology was a little bit off in this issue of the resurrection. And that was bringing great discouragement for them. You can see if you're following along the notes, the, the goal to see today is for us to know that the eschatological rapture should relinquish reservations. The eschatological rapture should relinquish reservations, meaning the future truth that God will rescue his people should take away some of our fears and concerns and worries about dying and death and those who have already died. There are kind of four sections here. We'll break it up in verse 13, 14, then 15 through 17 and 18 is going to be really short. So the big section is actually talking about the rapture itself. Um, but first off, he gives the reason. Verse 13, the reason for teaching the rapture is hope. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's like the nicest way to say it, isn't it? He's like, I don't want you to be uninformed. Like, he's, he's very nice. He's not demeaning them. He's calling them brothers. But it's just like, you don't know something. And I need to make sure that this is clear. Like, 
very nicely, reminder to us to be nice to others when they are like, oh, wow, you're really ignorant about this. Well, let me inform you. We all have things we need to learn. We all have ways we need to grow. And God uses trials and temptations and difficulties often to reveal some of those ways that we need to grow in. For the Thessalonians, it was people dying. They're going, oh, something's wrong here. And Paul is trying to address that. In fact, it's interesting. Every great doctrine that the church teaches was at one time fought against by some false teacher. And the church had to get together and say, well, what does the Bible actually say? Like, we kind of thought we knew, but like, let's really work this out. And doctrines are always formed against trials and testings and difficulties. Now, fallen asleep means dead. We use that phrase too. It's pretty common. Some people try and argue for um, like what they call death sleep. That you know, people who who falls who die, they're just like sleeping forever, and there is no heaven, there is no hell. Like even Jesus used this term as a nice way of saying they're dead. Um, and very common, useful thing. And we have to remember that the philosophy of the Greek culture, Thessalonica, is a Greek city, and the Greek understanding of death was very depressing. There was a group called the Epicureans, who were the kind of enlightened, smart group, and they denied that the soul was immortal. They believed the soul was material, like the body, and it died with it. Uh, but most Greeks believed in the shadowy underlife. Like, you know, you think of that those images you, you might have heard in the stories, the Greek myths of crossing the river Styx and being under the Greek god of death, Hades, in the underworld, right? It's all kind of being trapped there. And everyone went there, and everyone was pretty much miserable. There wasn't really too much in the way of heaven. And so the Greek mind could not conceive of resurrection. Remember, Paul was in Mars Hill, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's talking about this god they didn't know, and they're all listening, going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh, tell us more, Paul, we want to learn more. And then he talked about the resurrection, and as soon as he said resurrection, they all, the scripture doesn't say exactly, but you could picture them throwing up their hands and they just stopped listening and they just went out and some mocked him, some had questions and some believed. And so for many of the Greek, the very idea of resurrection coming back to life was um, confusing at best and disgusting at worst. Think of it like how we as Westerners think of reincarnation. We're like, you're, you're like you were a deer and now you became a person and you might become something else like you think you're going to become a god like that's just that's weird right different cultures and so those around them their family members their non-christian family members their teachers their classmates their neighbors they had no hope when it came to death Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, said, Oh, that there were some divine word upon which we could more securely and less perilously sail. Upon, we'd pawn some stronger vessel into death. Socrates was really concerned about death. Now, what's interesting, though, with this reason, we have to remember this from the very beginning. He does not say, so that you may not grieve. Again, look in your Bibles. It says, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
Sadly, I think even in the church, people are often told, like, aren't you over it by now? Like, you shouldn't be grieving this way. Like, if you trusted God, you would be done with this. And I love this quote by William Shakespeare, where he said, everyone can master a grief except the one who has it. And isn't, isn't that true? Often, I think we try and do a lot to avoid grief. We use terms like celebration of life in funerals, which, again, I, I get. I'm not against it, but we, we try and avoid that. Or I don't know, I, I, there's often a lot of discomfort over that final lowering of the casket into the ground. People just don't, they don't want to do that anymore. But we should actually embrace grief's push towards sadness so that we can have true hope. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, True religion does not banish grief. It bounds it. Like that. True, true religion does not banish grief. It bounds it. Grace puts a lower limit on the depths of grief. There is a bottom to the profoundest of our misery. Our winters shall not frown forever. Summer shall too smile. Like it's okay to be sad. And we can have hope. Paul David Tripp, the pastor and biblical counselor, gives us a couple ways to think about grief and what it means to grieve with hope. And he says, first off, you cannot prepare for death. There's really no way to prepare. And those of you who've experienced death of really close ones, like you know that. All of us who are like, they're, you can't be ready for it. But perhaps knowing you can't be ready for it helps you because you don't feel bad that you're like shocked by it. Like just knowing we can't be. But we have to also remember that death is not a part of God's original plan. I've said this in funerals and I have to, you know, kindly like talk about the funeral directors and I'm just like, guys, don't, don't believe when they tell you that death is just a natural part of life. It's not. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25, Paul says, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy, death, says that this world is broken. As long as there is death, as long as someone is dying, even if no one cares about them, as long as someone is dying, this world is not existing according to God's plan. It's like the blue screen that pops up on my computer, or for those of you with Macs, the little spinning rainbow, um, that says, hey, there's a problem here, right? There's an enemy coming for us all. We will all die. We should not feel bad about being angry over death because death is an invading enemy. Death is like those in Ukraine with missiles coming down upon their homes and they're rightly furious over it. Death is bad. But just because we know death is not part of this, the God's good plan, we know we can grieve in a new and different way. I'd actually argue, and Paul Tripp argues, that Christians really should be sadder than anyone when it comes to death. Because we, we mourn not just for the loved one who is lost, but for the fact that death exists and continues to destroy. We're just like, this is just wrong. And God approves of your tears. The comfort and, he, and hope that he provides in your grief allows you to grieve with hope. 
We're able to take our sadness to him. Again, the goal is to grieve differently. Not to lessen the time of your grief and put some parameters on it. Not to say, you know, you need to walk through some steps of grief and be over and done with it. Not to get over grief, but to hope in the midst of grief. And he does that in verse 14. Because you notice that verse 14 starts with this very important word, for. For. How may they not grieve as others do? Because the rapture relies on the resurrection. Notice the flow. Don't grieve because the rapture, or sorry, let me clarify. Don't grieve like the world does because the rapture relies upon the resurrection. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Since we believe is a logical argument that Paul's taking us through. He's saying, hey, you know A is true, therefore B must also be true. You got that little argument there? Since the resurrection of Jesus is true, something else is true. As Christians, they believed the gospel truth. Jesus died and rose again. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no salvation outside of a belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the whole of our faith. Jesus was dead and he rose again. And not only he rose again, he ascended into heaven and now he is working for us. What's interesting is the Thessalonians, they got that. And the Thessalonians understood that Jesus was coming back. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 13 says, May God establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, they had Jesus' return right, but they had a confusion where they thought that if their loved ones were already dead, they missed Jesus. Now, that seems ridiculous to us. I, I was talking with Rich Nelson for the morning service. We were pointing out, like, if there's one thing in America that everyone agrees upon is that their loved ones are in heaven and they will go and see their loved ones one day. Like, you talk... Any one of my, even my um, kind of Hinduistic neighbors, that they'll say that, right? Everyone believes that. They did not. That should give us pause and humility at something that we might say, oh, well, of course, not, or it's hard for us to get and not be chronologically, or chronist, chronistically, chronistically, being, being snobberish over the past. Like, oh, we're so much smarter than them. Like, we kind of struggle in a different way than they did. But they really struggled at this because of their Greek culture. They're going, but once you die, that's, that's forever. Like, they've missed out on being with Jesus. Like, ah. But Paul's saying, guys, if Jesus was raised from the dead, God's going to raise other people from the dead too. Doesn't that make sense? God is going to bring those who have fallen asleep 
with Jesus. And notice that says, through Jesus. It says, um, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. A person's Christian faith is a great assurance. You will see them again. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary for the Christian life. You will see them again. They will be raised, just like Jesus was. And this is actually a really important foundation, because the foundational aspect of the Christian faith is the resurrection. There was a man named Sir Lionel Luckhoo. He was a famous prosecutor and defendant lawyer, and he had an unprecedented record of 245 consecutive defense myrtle trial acquittals. So 247 times in a row, he got his client off a murder conviction. Like, well, either he was picking them really well, or perhaps maybe all of them were not innocent. Uh, but no. he claims they were. Uh, and he wrote, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, unequivocally, the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. I have an additional paper here for you that I didn't get on that. Um, and you can, I would love for you to look over this later time if you question it, but it's called the feat of history, the great feat of history that is the resurrection. Feet, F-E-A-T, fatal torment of Jesus, clearly he died. The empty tomb of Jesus, clearly proven. The appearances of Jesus seen by many and the transformation of his followers. Those who were scared and gave up everything. Jews who stopped worshiping on Saturday, who gave up so much of their heritage to follow Jesus. The resurrection, even if you erased the Bible itself, which is impossible, we could still, by so many historical accounts, say the resurrection happened. And the resurrection matters for our hope. It matters for our theology. And let me give perhaps a, a, just a couple application thoughts. There could be some more. Maybe you could think of them and share them during Koinonia time. But I, I want to point out here that the test of our faith then is not just a, you know, agreeing with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Just saying, oh yes, like yet he did happen. It's whether we believe it enough to slow down all of our worries. Tim Chester, writing in his book, The Busy Christian Guides to Busyness. Believing in the God who raised Jesus from the dead matters. Believing that it is going to be all right and this belief ultimately is incompatible with fear. Though we may at any stage in our lives grasp the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, it takes all our life long to let that belief soak through and permeate the rest of our thinking, feeling, and worrying lives. Like, the resurrection of Jesus needs to permeate 
our beliefs so that we actually believe and believe that that affects the relationships around us. But secondly, too, it's not always just the doctrines of the Bible, but the example of the Bible. Notice how Paul is trying to deal with their great cultural hang-up. They are Greeks, and they're, they're saying, this makes no sense to me. And so notice how Paul handles it. He says, well, you believe the resurrection of Jesus, right? Yes, Paul, we do. Well, then you will believe that your relatives will be resurrected contrary to all your childhood training. And so the same thing we should do when we, when we are working with a friend, family member, a believer who's new to the church and you're trying to disciple them, you're talking with them about each and they say something, you're just like, that. you got that so wrong. Perhaps we can start with, well, you believe this is true, right? Well, then shouldn't this be true as well? Work them through that process as the Apostle Paul did. Now, Paul sets the case. He says the reason he's going to tell them. He tells them why it's important. And then he gives them a description so vivid it can warm the hearts in times of sorrow. Verses 15 through 17, the reality of the rapture. This is beautiful when we think about it. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. You can see I, I, I brought out in there in the notes three elements to sharpen the amazingness of this picture. So the, these are three different parts that kind of make you go, oh yeah, I, it, it brings clarity to the image that, that Paul is painting here. And verse 15 is the word comes from the king. Jesus is the one speaking. The word comes from the king. Again, verse 15, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. He has a word from Jesus. When Paul says the Lord, he's not just saying God. That's a phrase he always uses referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have no specific records of Jesus' words saying this in the um, New Testament. Perhaps some people try to make an argument that Matthew 25 fits into that, but it, it seems different, and I, I will argue in a minute it's different. Other people will say, well, perhaps these were things that he said after his resurrection during those 40 days of instruction when he was teaching people. Even in, in Acts chapter 1, we see the people saying, are you going to set up your kingdom now, oh Jesus? And he goes, no, it's not for you to know the time. Or perhaps after Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he went into the desert and he was trained. He, by, he says in, this, in Galatians itself, by the very resurrected Jesus instructing him. Maybe it was a special revelation that Paul had. Either way, he is claiming that this is not just the thought of Paul. All of scripture is not just the thought of church people 
trying to figure out God in their time, this is the very words of God. The Bible is God's words. Any people, progressive Christians, try and say, oh yeah, there's just, you know, just, the Bible is just people trying to figure God out. Well, that's not what the Bible claims to be. You can't say that. The Bible is the words of God. And he says, this word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are now living, and if the Lord continues to tarry, those who will be alive in the future, because Paul isn't alive anymore. And, and he puts an order here. They will not go before those who are already dead. We don't know why God does that, but for whatever reason, God has said, before I save the living, I'm going to resurrect the dead. They are going first. And he describes this as a powerful call from the Lord. Verse 16 through 17a, really, it's, it's, it kind of flows over here. The call of the Lord is powerful. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left will be caught up together with him. So, he gives the reason that we all go together. The rapture. And, and so this is the idea. He first says the Lord will come and he will make a shout, a loud proclamation. He describes that three different ways. So some people want to say, oh yeah, these are three different things. I, I'm of the opinion that those are all happening at the same time. Um, it's, it's concurrently just a lot of noise. And I think it is different from the call that Jesus makes in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, 31, Jesus says that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds and from the end of heaven to the other. Now, here, it seems to be Jesus himself is calling. So that's why, again, I don't want to get into huge amounts of details here, but that's why some of us, and I think we would largely agree, um, the teachers at this church, that Jesus first calls his believers before the tribulation happens, and then there's another call at the end of the tribulation, which gathers up all of his people for a final battle in, that you get to in Revelation 20. At the glorious, that's the glorious coming. His angels do the gathering. Here, he calls them to himself. And I would argue this is probably more like what Jesus said in John 14, verse 3. When he's in the upper room, he tells them, I'm going away, but I'm going to be busy preparing a place for you. And he says, I will come back and I will take you to be with me and that you may be where I am. John 14, 3. I'm going to come and I'm going to take you. He's making a promise about the future, which lines up with what he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. And, and he says, when he makes this loud call, the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice, it's the dead in Christ who are going to rise. When you get to Revelation 20, actually you have the resurrection of everybody. Sinners and saints, believers and unbelievers, everyone is raised and given bodies again, and the, the books are opened and they're judged. 
for all that they have done in their lives. And those whose names are written in the book of life will be saved. That's Revelation 20. Here, it's just all the believers. Every believer who has ever, ever died will rise up again. And, and this is like, this is kind of crazy when you think about it. You're like, even try and picture in your mind, like, okay, um, a believer who died like two centuries ago, their body has been completely broken down and their atoms have actually been regurgitated into plants and things and come out somewhere else. And how, how are they going to have a body again? But that's what he said. They're, they're going to be resurrected. Not, not just, oh, they'll, they'll be created again. Like their body will come back together in some way. He doesn't tell us exactly how, but they're going to be them again. Just like Jesus was himself. He is as called the first fruits of the resurrection. He's what we will become. Because Jesus was raised, we'll be raised in the same way. And then it's after the dead are raised comes the rapture. And verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Out. I have some people who often say, ah, rapture isn't in the Bible. The word isn't in the Bible. But that's kind of like when I was a teenager and my mom would come and tell me, hey, Chris, find your shoes. I'd look around my room and I'd be like, they're not anywhere. I can't find them. And she'd walk in, look at the floor, pick up a shirt off the ground and be like, those shoes right there, right? And it's the same way when people say that. They're like, there's no rapture in the Bible. And you go, well, I hear you. And I can understand the confusion. But did you know that the word caught up in Latin is rapturo? It's just a translation issue. Like it, 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 the, the Greek translated in Latin is where we get our word rapture. We could call it caught upness if you want to. That's fine. It's the, it's the catching up. And so then that word is actually there, but it's just a translation issue. Rapture is right there. The same word is used to describe how the Holy Spirit caught up Philip when he was near Gaza and took him to Caesarea in Acts chapter 8. Being caught up isn't even unprecedented in the Old Testament. Remember Enoch? Enoch, Genesis 5, 24. God took him and he was no more. He was just caught up one day. He didn't die. And in the same way, Elijah was took up to heaven by whirlwind. If you read some old commentators like um, John Calvin and, and uh, Augustine of Hippo, they're like, wait a second. How can someone get to heaven without dying? That doesn't make any sense. You have to die first. And they're like, well, not everyone in the Bible died. And, and they went to heaven. And we could argue, again, over pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, um, that's for a whole other sermon. The, the point here is that this is supposed to give hope. And I do want to make one comment about that term secret rapture. Many of you have heard the term secret rapture. It's been used by those who believe in it and those who are against it. And, and certain fictional books have maybe have given you the image of a bunch of empty clothes sitting around. So perhaps what would happen is suddenly the Lord returns right now and Christians hear God's call. And everyone else is like, what? 
Um, they don't hear anything. And suddenly, in this room, everyone disappears except a couple of you who aren't really Christians. And you get like, what? Just, I missed the rapture. Oh, no. Or, you know, people on airplanes and they disappear and their clothes are sitting there. I get that. Um, but when Philip was taken, he wasn't taken in nakedness. He didn't show up in Caesarea naked. Um, and, and when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, his clothes glowed themselves. God doesn't have an aversion to clothing. He's not like, oh, I, I can't take the clothing. That's dirty. Um, so there's no reason to assume clothing won't be part of this catching up. And there's also no reason to believe that, not, that everyone does not hear this call. God is going to make a lot of noise when he makes this call. And some people will argue like, well, but how in the world can the whole world hear a loud call? They can hear this noise from heaven and, you know, the Left Behind books or the Left Behind movies said this was going to happen. How could they not believe? Really? Well, one, Jesus did miracles in front of them all the time. And did they always believe him? No. And you can think of anything over the past few years of like lies that have gone back and forth with this media and that media and people who just believed lies and you're like, this is obviously wrong. How do you believe this? People suppress the truth. We don't want to believe things. There's no reason to say from this text that only Christians hear this. Christians respond, but it's loud. Now, some people, good brothers in the faith, pastors, Bible teachers, will disagree on this. They disagree on the timing. Everyone has to agree that this word rapture is going to take place, but usually it's a timing issue. For example, John Piper, who I greatly appreciate, um, says that the word for meeting used here, we'll meet him in the sky, uh, is in other places in the Bible only refers to a meeting in which people go out to meet a dignitary and then accompany him to the place from which they came out. So they argue it only makes sense that we go and meet Jesus and turn around and go back to earth right away. So the pre-tribulation waiting doesn't make sense in his mind. However, the same word is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, I know a man who was caught up into paradise, rapturo, into paradise, whether in body or out of body, I don't know, God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told. So Paul was taken out and went to heaven and was there for a period of time to learn. Other parts of the scripture like Revelation, Daniel, Matthew 24, um, these things help us get the timing down to help us go, okay, you know, when does this take place? But the point Paul is trying to get at is trying to say, you don't have to be, you can have hope when it comes to your family members because of this truth. This is a truth about hope. And the third element that he brings out here is not just that we will be raptured, but the place we will be raptured to, the place we will reunite with our loved ones is with Jesus. End of verse 17. Notice he says, will be caught up together with them, being the loved ones who we've lost, in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is the glorious reunion of faith made sight. Paul spoke about the same truth elsewhere. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. He says, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Believers are going to, be, are going to receive in a moment their new heavenly bodies, glorified bodies. Interestingly, I read a statistic. You blink 20,000 times a day. And every blink lasts about a tenth of a second. And that is the speed that this change happens. It is one moment done. Like, there's a certain theology right now that's becoming popular. People who are like, they're just grinding away at trying to change the world. And they're like, we're going to make this world better. And it's just slow and it's a lot of back and forth. We believe in a moment Jesus will change everything. We don't know when it will be. And... Yet we, we know this. In the end, Jesus will always be with us. But being with him will be different because we will finally be changed. Like Jesus is with us always, even now, right? And, and yet you struggle with doubts. You struggle with concerns. It's like that day is coming to an end and it could happen at any moment. It's interesting, because the, the prophecy of the rapture is a sure thing. It's going to be fulfilled as much as the prophecies of Christ's death and resurrection happened, so this will happen. Picture it this way. If someone owed you $100,000, they owed you $100,000, that's a lot of money to owe you. And on top of that, a little interest was accumulated during that owing period. And that person pays you back the $100,000. And they haven't got the, and they're like, I'll get you the interest, right? I think you'd be like, hey, no problem, right? Like, I trust you. You're good for your money. You already paid me back on the big things, right? Charles Spurgeon, talking about this, says, The little that remains, for it is comparatively so little, ought to cause us no anxieties or doubts or fears or misgivings because of what the Lord has done for us in the gospel. He has paid the biggest price. He has been resurrected. And in the same way, guys, death, death is new for every person. Every person has the experience of their parent dying, their spouse dying, their children dying. And I know it's less than it used to be. But he's saying the same Jesus who was raised from the dead by the Father will raise your Christian loved ones one day. You can be assured of that. So we're supposed to take hope when discouraged. Notice 
Notice he says, and we will always be together. It's not just that you'll see your loved ones. As glorious as I hope that is, that that is a sweet thing, but that wasn't even the the Thessalonians' big concern, and it shouldn't necessarily be our biggest concern. The issue is that your loved ones will not miss out on Jesus. The greatest thing you and I can do for those we love most is point them to see Jesus. Because that was what will satisfy them in the end. And what we get to long for with our Christian loved ones who have passed away is we get to join them in looking at Jesus together. And that will wipe away every tear and every concern and make everything right. Now we get to be Jesus' hands and feet. We get to point people to him. We get to tell people about him. We get to tell them about the one who gives us hope in times of sorrow. One that answers our questions, that promises goodness. But most importantly, we should and get to long for heaven. Because salvation is offered to those who repent and believe. We can only be saved by the gospel message of what Jesus has done. Now this section ends with, fourth, verse 18, the reassurance of the rapture. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The fourth reassurance of the rapture should be shared with others. The reassurance of the rapture should be shared. It's not enough for us just to know this ourselves because That only stays with me, and then I sometimes doubt it. We are to encourage others. The Christian's expectation of the rapture happening and being joined together with those we have lost is important because it it deals with the very nature of hope and expectation. Some reasons this should be shared. The rapture will comfort someone. The rapture is going to motivate us. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it's going to encourage us onward. The rapture brings us to Jesus. We don't have to fear his judgment. And the rapture is about, Revelation 3 says, being removed from the horrible wrath of God that comes upon the world. Today, there, there is great suffering, and especially in a lot of Islamic countries, Christians are being beaten and dying for their faith. It's hard. You think back to when ISIS was literally lining Christians up and beheading them. That still happens in places, a little more subtly than ISIS did it. And and at times, an argument is made of saying, well, these people are suffering. Is God going to, like, like is God saying that we Christians don't suffer? No. That's not the point. God does not say Christians don't suffer any more than he says don't grieve or Christians don't die. What he's promising here is though at times it seems like there's great failure, Christians are losing the war. The battles are lost. Someone, we, we prayed immensely for someone to be healed and they die. We pray for peace to reign in a place, and yet evil comes in and Christians are killed. We're going to appear to fail, but we will be victorious in the blink of an eye when Jesus makes his call. 
Those who seem to have died in defeat will be raised in victory. So Christians are commanded to encourage one another. Think of it like a good coach. A good coach is calling out to a swimmer or a runner. Keep it up, keep it up, just run. Or or think of it this way, like a teacher. The phrase is always well said. If you really want to learn something well, teach it. If you want to, to be able to have this hope, disciple someone else. Try and work through their questions. Encourage them with this. This has to be our goal, not just to comfort ourselves, but to comfort others. I think we've seen the rapture should matter for our hope. The reason for this doctrine is hope. The foundation is the sure resurrection of Jesus. The goal is to not just be with our loved ones, but to be with Jesus with them. And we are to share this with others. And this matters because it's in the Bible. Like, we know that, right? Like, it should matter because it's in the Bible. But often, you know, it's one of those sections that we look at like, in the user manual that says, you know, if the computer doesn't work, try turning it off and back on again. And you're just like, uh, what? Like, like that, that, that's for only those who are having problems, right? Like, that's the, that's the little section that's, that gives, you know, if there's a problem, look at this section. But what's interesting is whenever you read about the rapture in Scripture, right next to it is a call to holiness. Here he says, encourage one another. In chapter 5, he goes on to tell them to be ready for the day of the Lord, to live a life honoring God at this time. To go back to the idea of a coach. It's like we're in a race. Our life is called often the Christian race. Right, we're, we're walking, but it's at night, and we don't have big fancy lights, so you, you do not know when the end will be. We're getting instructions from Jesus: keep running. It's going to be over in a flash. Just keep going a little faster, a little longer. Like yes, it's been two thousand years, and the Lord has not returned yet. But his desire for us all is to run as if he would, could return in this moment because it will be just a flash. Live like the race is almost done every single day. Run hard for God's glory. And he says he will give us the comfort that our souls require.